You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Well, for those of you, I think a few new faces, um, give you a little repeated introduction to Flannery O'Connor, and I'm and I'm very fortunate. I had uh, when I was when I took Flannery at UAH when I was getting my master's, uh, I was with uh, Dr. Carter Martin. Is if you'll ever get out the Norton Anthology or the American Traditional Literature, and you look in there, the they have the best critics in the world there, and he's like usually one of the first names in there. So I had a about the top Flannery person in the uh, in the whole country or the world, really. So that's great. And uh, as I said last time, uh, if you can understand three words, you can understand everything that Flannery O'Connor ever wrote: is mystery, manners, and the grotesque. And the mystery is the mystery of God's grace. Somebody receives salvation in every one of her stories. She was very devout, devout Catholic. She went to uh, went to church every day. You know, she grew up in Milledgeville, Georgia, and uh, we got to see her church. And she died tragically at 39 of lupus, so there's no telling what stories uh, uh, just died with her. And so, uh, but anyway, uh, and so look, when you're looking for who receives grace, look for uh, peacocks and the skyline, tree line. It's not who you think gets it. That's what the course is, the shocking and inexplicable presence of grace, which reminds me kind of the doctrine of the elect, you know, with the, the Calvinists. It's just like God picks somebody, and it's not maybe the one that you think deserved it. Last week we saw grandmother, she caused, she caused the wreck, she caused them all to get killed, right? I mean, <laughs> so how, how's she the one that gets grace? But it's because her heart opened, and she just turned to the misfits, well, you're one of my babies. I mean, she said, what did they do to you? She just loved it, loved the man who just killed her family. I mean, that's, that's pretty shocking, isn't it? Uh, and so the second was, is manners. And that is her, uh, her style. And it's a synecdoche, a part standing for the whole. It's for the South. And so, uh, she, her puts her stories in the, uh, in the South. She was in Milledgeville, Georgia, as I said, where she lived. But don't call her a Southern writer. If you're any good, you're talking about the human heart. I mean, for everybody all over the world. But you've got to put your story someplace. And then the grotesque, uh, let's see, uh, the, the manners is her setting. I may have misspoke. And the grotesque is her style. And that's what makes her unique. I've read a lot of religious writers. I've read a lot of grotesque writers. She's the only grotesque religious writer I've ever come across. I'm, she's unique. That means she's the only one, right? But as uh, as I read in that sheet, this, we can at least do that second one. The novelist with Christian concerns will find in modern life distortions which are repugnant to him. And his problem will be to make these appear as distortions to an audience which is used to seeing them as natural. And he may well be forced to take ever more violent means to get his vision across to his hostile audience. Here's the key part. To the heart of hearing you shout, and for the almost blind you draw large and startling figures. She said, this has just been such a crazy world, and you've seen so many horrible, violent things that I've got to be downright shocking to get your attention. And there we like last week, uh, 
we had a grandmother shot by uh, the, a misfit. And uh, we're going to have some the same thing here. My favorite line, I think, by Flannery, and I, this is great for the kids. She once said, if you know who you are, you can go anywhere. Isn't that great advice for teenagers? If you know inside who you are, what's right and what's wrong, and what you will do and what you will not do, then you can, you can go to a different school. You can move to a different country because you know inside, you know, what matters to you and what's, uh, what's important and where you draw the line. Well, let's get in here. I'm going to run out of time if I don't get into it. Okay? So this is Good Country People. This is, again, one of her best-known stories. And we start this, Mrs. Uh, we talk about uh, Mrs. Hopewell. And uh, her, she has a daughter named Joy. And uh, it's as ironic as it can be, a large, now that's being kind, blonde girl who had an artificial leg. She was 32 years old and highly educated. And then they have a sharecropper that lives on named Mrs. Freeman. And she has two daughters named Glenice and Kara May. And I think O'Connor and Dickens were probably the best at names there ever was. I talked last week about Mr. Pumblechook, you know, and Great Expectations. I'm doing that with my ninth graders at Altamont right now. Anyway, Glenice and Caramay. Joy called them glycerin and caramel. Uh, <laughs> Glenice, Glenice was a redhead, was 18 and had many admirers. We can figure that out. And Caramay, a blonde, was only 15 but already married and pregnant. So, you know, they've kind of been around a while, I guess, okay? So, uh, uh, Let's see, Mrs. Hopewell had no bad qualities of her own, but she was able to use other people's in such, such a constructive way that she never felt the lack. She, in that great way of just kind of backhanding the insults, she had hired the Freemans and had kept them for four years. And then in comes the large, hulking Joy, whose constant outrage had obliterated every expression from her face, would stare just a little to the side of her, her eyes icy blue, and I said, we're already starting to head towards the skyline, okay? With a look of someone who had achieved blindness by an act of will and means to keep it. Well, our central symbol is going to be Holga's wooden leg. She's large lady, and she's got a wooden leg, and she every day is a bad day. She is just depressed every single day. And she's decided she's going to make every day miserable, not just for her, but for everybody else in her family, okay? And so, all right, so let's see. Uh, her remarks were usually so ugly and her face so glum that Mrs. Hopewell would say, if you can't come pleasantly, I don't want you at all. To which the girl standing square and rigid shouldered with her neck thrust slightly inward, forward would reply, if you want me, here I am, like I am. Take it or leave it, right? Mrs. Hopewell excused this attitude because of the leg which had been shot off in a hunting accident when Joy was 10. Her name was really Joy, but as soon as she was 21 and away from home, she had had it legally changed. Mrs. Hopewell had was certain that she had thought and thought until she had hit upon the ugliest name in any language. Her legal name was Holga. Now, if that's your mama's name, I apologize, okay? That's just, it's gorgeous. And if it's your mama's name, then I love it, okay? When Holga stumped into the kitchen, I, I'm afraid that's kind of uh, maybe a politically incorrect line now. I, I, I hope Flannery didn't mean it that way, um, but she may have. I, as I said last week, somebody asked her what writers she liked. She liked Faulkner and Melville and Hawthorne, of course, but she also liked Poe. And they said, you know, she, uh, said she liked uh, 
his humorous tales. And uh, which ones? Which ones exactly? <laughs> that, that wasn't Poe's strong suit, as I remember. And so a line like that, maybe. So she had a little different sense of humor than some people. Anyway, stumped in in the morning, she could walk without making the awful noise, but she made it. For the, I'm sure you've all read Moby Dick, and you remember that time where where Ishmael's below deck and he hears Ahab walk, but he's never seen Captain Ahab, but Ahab would like to walk at night, and he's just jamming that ivory leg down into the deck just to make the point there. And I think she's doing the same thing there. Okay, well. Um, Southern writers uh, have a penchant for using the grotesque. And as I, as I tell my students, it's not to gross you out as Hollywood often does, but they're saying, pay attention. Okay? And I know the grotesque turns some people off, but what she's saying is, pay attention. This matters. And Holga's wooden leg is important. It's the central symbol. Her wooden leg symbolizes her wooden soul. And so that wooden leg must be taken for her to be receptive for the presence of grace. And Flannery was roundly criticized for uh, the grotesque. And they said, all you, all you Southern writers can do is use the grotesque. And she gave as good as she got. If you, about five down, you can see that uh, four down. She said, I've found that anything that comes out of the South is going to be called grotesque by the Northern reader. Unless it is grotesque. In which case, it's going to be called realistic. Isn't that a great... <laughs> Isn't that great? <laughs> Your mama, I mean, that is just amazing. And again, whenever I'm asked why Southern writers particularly have a penchant for writing about freaks, I say it's because we're still able to recognize one. At least we know a freak when we see him. Y'all think he's normal. So, man, all right. She would back down from nobody. Anyway, so... Uh, the doctors had told Mrs. Hopewell that with the best of care, Joy might see 45. She had a weak heart. Well, so there's another important symbol in the book. Is that her, she's got a weak heart. That's a double entendre. She's got a weak heart physically, but she's also got a weak heart spiritually. And that's got to be opened up. She was brilliant, but she didn't have a grain of sense. Now, no names, but I know you know somebody like that, okay? I mean, I heard that Einstein couldn't keep his shoelaces tied. And his brain was somewhere else, I mean, somewhere else that we couldn't go. Uh, but she's got to learn some sense. To her own mother, she said, during a meal, with her, in her face purple, and we said last week that's a religious color. We see a lot of purple around here. See a little purple right now there, uh, and her. So we're head. Holga's heading towards grace, and her mouth half full. Woman, do you ever look inside? Do you ever look inside and see what you are not? God, Malbranch was right. We are not our own light. We are not our own light. And as you know, Malbranch, famous French philosopher, right? You, you could probably give me some works by him, which I couldn't name. But there's going to be dramatic irony in what she says. Often there's more truth to what she says than she's aware. She's going to have to realize she's not her own life. She doesn't have all the answers. Okay? She didn't like dogs or cats or birds or flowers or nature or nice young men. I know who she's heard from. Can't you find yourself some nice young man to marry? She looked at nice young men as if she could smell their stupidity. Isn't that a great line? That's synesthesia. That's a switching of the senses to smell stupidity. 
She has another great line, one of her stories, talking about some guy who wasn't right bright. She says his brain was as slick as his eyeballs. Isn't, isn't that great? I mean, there, there are no furrows in there. If an idea hit his brain, this just, it is right off. It is gone. All right, let's see. And then we get a knock on the door. Here's where I'm going to shock you. That The door, if y'all need to leave, you can take off. Now we, and there's a Bible salesman. As if this story needs anything else. Okay, we get a Bible salesman. He was a tall, gaunt, hatless youth who had called yesterday to sell them a Bible. He's carrying a black suitcase, as we know, archetype for evil, right? He was not a bad-looking young man, though he had on a bright blue suit and yellow socks that were not pulled up far enough. Now, we're getting a little of the minor grotesque. He had a prominent face, bones, and a streak of sticky-looking brown hair falling across his forehead. So he's got an electric suit. I had a math teacher like that at BUS with trig. I still don't understand logarithms, but it was... I mean, we joked him, where did he plug his suit in at night? I mean, just, you never seen those, they just kind of glow. It was just, we were amazed that he, it could shine that much. Anyway, so this, the Bible salesman glanced, now Holga gives him one of those nasty looks, and he's, he said, don't mess with me, lady. You think you're bad. He glanced up into her unfriendly face. People like you don't like to fool with country people like me. You think you're bad? Mm, I'll show you bad. And so he says, now, if you're a salesman, a traveling salesman, okay, what's the toughest part? What's the key moment? If you're trying to make that sale, what have you got to do? you got to get your foot in that door, right? Okay, Not interested. Don't want it. Whatever it is, don't want it. Don't want it. I had a friend in high school who sold uh, encyclopedias back when you could sell Britannicas, right? And I mean, he, he made good money, $2,500, which is a lot of money back in the 70s for summer work. But he, he, you know, he had people sick dogs on him and he, he was out at lunchtime one time with this lady and her husband came home and kind of suspected things and went to get his gun and forced me. My friend, we were, we were runners together, so he knew how to run 10 miles without stopping, which is about what he needed to do. Anyway, the Bible salesman said, I want to devote my life to Christian service. Isn't that a great little <coughs> little um, malaprise? It was Christian. I got this heart condition. I may not live long. Let's see, now he's in, right? Because joy has heart conditions. That's the one thing that gets Holga's mom to open the door. Now, how did he know to say... Yeah, he's got a heart condition. He doesn't have one, okay? But how did he know to tell her that? If you're that traveling salesman, you're going to make that sale over there. What are you going to do? At that previous house, what are you going to do? Tell me about him. Tell me. Oh, she, she's, she, her daughter's... Bad news, she's got a heart condition. Bing, okay, got that. He and Joy had the same condition. She knew that her eyes were filling with tears. It's just a match in heaven, right? But she collected herself and quickly and murmured, Won't you stay for dinner? All right. Her father had been crushed. I'm just, I'm having to just hit highlights. His father had been crushed under a tree when he himself was eight years old. That may be true. I mean, he may have chopped down the tree. I just know he may have been, you know, but he doesn't have a dad. Holgas doesn't have a father. So anyway, he's ingratiating himself. All right, so let's see. And so now he starts talking to her. They get a little time alone, a little, <laughs> little private time here. And now he starts, here's where he starts putting the love talk on, right? Okay, guys, all the good pickup lines. With, I've, I've discovered the only good pickup line's a puppy. 
I mean, you know, if I, if, if, if I were out on the market, I'd have a puppy with me all the, that's the only thing that works. But it looked, have you ever heard, ever heard this one? He whispered, you ever ate a chicken that was two days old? <laughs> Who would say something like that? Oh my goodness. And he starts talking to her. How old are you? She waited some time before she answered. Why? Now, how old is she? 32, right? She waits a little while. She didn't answer right off. She's thinking, how badly can I lie and get away with it, right? Then in a flat voice, she said, 17. <laughs> so she divides by two, right? And then he says, he gives some love talk. He says, I like to walk in the woods and see what Mother Nature's wearing. Couldn't we go on a picnic tomorrow? And uh, in this, let's see, about, let's see. And the guy's name is Manly Pointer, as we find out, which is unusual name. So he wants to go to a picnic. During the night, she had imagined she seduced him. Holga has never been on a date. Okay, she's finally getting a date, so she's having some wild dream. Okay, so she's uh, rather inexperienced here. She didn't take anything to eat. Forgetting that food's usually taken on a picnic. She, she's new at this, right? She wore a pair of slacks and a dirty white shirt. She didn't even get on clean clothes. And as an afterthought, she had, she put some Vapex on the collar of it. Now, that, instead of like Chanel number no. five, she gets like some Vicks Vapor Rub. Okay. This'll work. This'll be great. Since she did not own any perfume. She had on the same suit and same, he, he had on the same suit and the same yellow socks that had, and the socks were, and the socks were sucked down in his shoes from walking. Doesn't that drive you crazy when they just start going down there? Okay. And so he's, they go out and he says, I guess, I guess God takes care of you. Which again, there's more truth to that than he thinks. When they reached the edge of the wood, he put his hand on her back again and drew her back against him without a word and kissed her heavily. And here's where it gets PG, right? Okay. And, uh, and this bad is sexy as Flannery gets. The, how many times she'd been kissed in her life? And this is it, right? The kiss, which had more pressure than feeling behind it, Produce that extra surge of adrenaline in the girl that enables one to carry a packed trunk out of the burning house. But in her, the power went at once to her brain. I mean, adrenaline. We all know about adrenaline. I had a, I had this aunt in uh, Scottsboro. I've got some relatives about there in Scottsboro. And uh, when she was, uh, I think, a teenager, and uh, uh, there... You know those giant washer pots? You know those iron cauldrons where they used to do the laundry and stuff? And, and she heard some screams and the, and the house was on fire. And she dragged that pot up to the house and poured the water on it. And when the fire was out, she couldn't lift the thing empty. That's spelled adrenaline. You've seen some adrenaline, right? Now, Holga was a philosophy major in college, okay? And you know, philosophy means like lover, lover of wisdom, right? And that's uh, the irony again is because she's just dumber in dirt. She just she doesn't know anything. All right. So uh, we're going out there, had had our kiss, and so he takes me and said, "I'm sa I'm saved, 
and you were damned. But I told you I didn't believe in God, she, Holga says. Okay? So she, she thinks she knows everything. And, but she has more truth to it. She thinks that she is saved. And he is damned. And then, oh my gosh, they start heading for the barn and the hayloft. Okay? When that's nothing, it's like nothing good happens after midnight, right? Nothing's good going to happen in the, in the hayloft. So he takes her up there. And the two speckled hillsides lay back against a dark ridge of woods. The sky was cloudless and cold blue. There's that, that tree line getting closer. He began methodically kissing her face and making little noises like a fish. <clears throat> when, then he takes her glasses off. When her glasses got in his way, he took them off of her and slipped them into his pocket. Well, the glasses are another important symbol, okay? Why do you think he takes her glasses off? Do what? She can't. She physically she can't see, but once she can't see physically, she's going to be able to see into the truth of him. It's kind of like if you've read. Uh, I know you've all read King Lear, and one of the key oxymorons in King Lear is sight is blindness, and blindness is sight. When Lear goes blind with with ma- with madness, that's when he starts seeing the true nature of things. That human relationships based on love, the nature of nature. When Gloucester has his eyeballs stomped out, that's when he sees the truth about which of his sons is the good one. Okay, so he takes the glass. So when she she's going to see when she loses her glasses. Okay, she was she was kissing him again and again as if she were trying to draw all the breath out of him. His breath was clear and sweet like a child's, and the kisses were sticky like a child's. He mumbled about loving her. But the first mumbling was like the sleepy fretting of a child being put to sleep by his mother. You ain't said you love me none, he whispered finally. You got to say that. Well, that kind of tells us something about what messed this guy up, don't you? Okay. He had some loveless child, my mama that maybe didn't care about him. So he, he's trying to find a substitute for that love. And that's, you know, I quoted Pat Conroy last week about, you know, that there's no fixing a damaged childhood. The best you can hope for is make that sucker float. And we talked about the misfits problems and, and here, mainly pointers here. And she looked away from him, off into the hollow sky. There she's looking at, and at the ridge. And she seldom paid any close attention to her surroundings. You got to say it, he repeated. You got to say you love me. Now, this is not the... We've all been on dates. You know, this is not the time to get philosophical, right? Yeah, yeah, I love you, whatever, okay? Now, kiss me. If he, then she says, well, if you, lo- if you use the word loosely, <laughs> you, might, you might say that. But it's not a word I use. I don't have illusions. I'm one of those people who see through to nothing. Well, there's the dramatic irony again. She doesn't see anything. She doesn't realize this guy is horrible. She doesn't realize there's a God. She doesn't realize that she is dumb. She said, we are all damned. But some of us have taken off our blindfolds. Well, that ties with the glasses, right? And see that there's nothing to see. It's kind of salvation. She thinks she's got all the answers. Like sophomores, you know, you know what sophomore means? Wise fool. You ever, you know, like the, some of the 10th grade, like, we got it all figured out. Okay. You teach, your parents are dumb. Now, okay. So, 
she was, now we get to this, the central symbols, her artificial leg, but she was as sensitive about the artificial leg as a peacock about his tail. And so there you go. This is the clearest example in all flannery of who receives grace. And Holga's probably not the one we pick out, though there's not a whole lot to choose from in this story, is there? No one ever touched it but her. She took care of it as someone else would his soul. Okay, so that wooden leg symbolizes her wooden soul. She's got to lose that leg in order to be able to receive grace. Okay? And she's, he says it's what makes you different. It, you ain't like every, anybody else, which is true. Everybody's unique and special. Okay? She decided that for the first time in her life, she was face to face with real innocence. Wrong. 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 This boy with an instinct that came from beyond wisdom had touched the truth about her. When after a minute, he wants to see her wooden, he has to see her wooden leg. Okay? And so, she, when after a minute, she said in a hoarse high voice, All right. It was like surrendering to him completely. It was like losing her own life and finding it again miraculously in here. And there's that shocking and miraculous sense, inexplicable sense of grace. And it's the miracle of God's grace that, you know, and she, sometimes she said, I can, uh, because of the evil, I can make concrete. I need to make grace, you know, pretty strong and powerful. And so he, he but this evil Bible salesman becomes the agent of God's grace through here. Okay? And so she takes her leg off and gives him her leg, her wooden leg. He pulls that black suitcase out and opened it. And then you don't even know that one another stuff in this. It had a pale blue spotted lining. Well, there's false grace. He is, he is not missing the tree line. And there were only two Bibles in it. He's a Bible salesman. He's got two Bibles. He took one of these out and opened the cover of it. It was hollow. Okay, another good symbol. He's got hollow Bibles. He is a hollow man. He has no soul whatsoever. And it contained a pocket flask of whiskey. This kind of like in the Roaring Twenties. They stick, you know, their whiskey in there or a gun or something. And a pack of dirty playing cards. And uh, anyway, and so he laid these out in front of her like one presenting offerings at the shrine of a goddess. I mean, it's just talk about strange here, okay? And so it's these, these cards have obscene pictures on him. And so then he, he starts getting her leg and he starts to leave. <laughs> she starts screaming, give me back my leg! And she screamed and tried to lunge for it, but he pushed her down easily. I remember in Dr. Martin's class, there was this student there, and he was just one of the ladies there, and she just couldn't get over that line. Just sitting here, she's after him, trying, give me back my leg, give me back my leg. Her face was almost purple. Again, religious color. You're a fine Christian. You're just like them all. Say one thing and do another. And then he, boy, he just turns on her. I hope you don't think in a lot, he said in a lofty, there's a little pun, indignant tone that I believe in that crap. And that's about as dirty as she gets. I may sell Bibles, but I know which end is up. And I wasn't born yesterday. 
and I know where I'm going. I know where he's going to. You know, straight to hell. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. You're gone, right? We can't help you. Give me back my leg, she screeched. She saw him grab the leg. He snatched up the valise and swung it down the hole and then stepped through himself. Now, this the setting works great here, doesn't it, right? As he goes, he descends out of the hayloft. Symbolically, he's descending into hell, isn't he, right? And he, but he's got to just get a last insult there. He, he said, I've gotten a lot of interesting things. One time I got a woman's glass eye this way. And you needn't think to catch me because Pointer ain't really my name. I use a different name at every house. I call it and don't stay nowhere long. And I'll tell you another thing. Holger, he said using the name as if he didn't think much of it. You ain't so smart. I've been believing in nothing ever since I was born. So he's a nihilist. I don't know how nihilists live. If nothing's important, why... How do, how do you live, right? So he just takes off with her leg. And then we end the same way we start. We, we began talking about Mrs. Hopewell, the sharecropper. And they see him, the Bible salesman, walking off. And then um, Mrs. Ho- uh, 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 Hopewell says he was so simple. But I guess the world would be better off if we were all that simple. So she doesn't get it either. And Mrs. Freeman, the, uh, the sharecropper, pulled out an evil-smelling onion shoot that she was lifting from the ground. And sometimes Flannery will end with a minor symbol just to kind of, you know, just to uh, put a period there on it. That that onion shoot becomes a symbol of, of evil there. Victor Hugo had a great quotation. He said, Faith is a necessity in man. Woe to him who believes in nothing. I mean, there's got to be something that you believe in. God your family, your country, all those things there are just so... You've got to have something there. Okay? Well, listen, have y'all got any questions? Anything y'all want to say about it? Any questions about the story? Anything doesn't doesn't make sense. So she's, uh, she's drawn to him and he becomes the agent of God's grace, which is just... Unbelievable. <clears throat> Let's go at that sheet then, okay? <clears throat> she said, The woods are full of regional writers, and is the horror of every serious southern writer that he will become one of them. The only way for him to keep from becoming one of them is to examine his conscience and to observe our fierce but fading manners in the light of an ultimate concern. And so that's what she's trying to do. Our fierce but fading manners. We are known for our good manners. And if you go out in the country, you've got grandparents, whatever. I mean, manners still matter. We can still find that. But you look around the world and society, they're, they're under attack, aren't they? Good manners are really under attack. So she said, what's it like to be a southerner, to be a human being in the light of an ultimate concern of God? Belief in God. She quotes St. Cyril, The dragon sits by the side of the road watching those who pass. Beware lest he devour you. We go to the father of souls. But it is necessary to pass by the dragon. She, she, she said the problem with today's society is that they don't believe in the devil. She said he, he's out there ready to swallow souls. Uh, let's see. Oh, and of course she liked Faulkner. The presence alone of Faulkner in our midst makes a great difference in what the writer can and cannot permit himself to do. Nobody wants his mule and wagon stalled on the same track 
The Dixie Limited is roaring down. Isn't that a nice compliment? I'm out there with my little horse and buggy writing the stories the best I can. Faulkner's a darn freight train. And, you know, if you're riding along by him, you're just going to get run over by competition there, okay? And then she quotes Joseph Conrad. I mean, was he not amazing? I mean, you know, he was Polish. He didn't learn English till he was 19. And he ends up being one of the greatest novelists of the English language. You know, Heart of Darkness and, you know, Secret Sharer. The presence of the, my task, which I'm trying to achieve is by the power of the written word to make you hear, to make you feel. It is above all to make you see that and no more. And it is everything. If I succeed, you shall find there, according to your deserts, encouragement, consolation, fear, charm, all you demand. And perhaps also that glimpse of truth for which you have forgotten to ask. Isn't that lovely? That's what she's trying to do. And there wasn't a Southern literature section when she was in college. As far as I knew in college, the, hero, <clears throat> the heroes of Hawthorne and Melville and James and Crane and Hemingway were balanced on the Southern side by Br'er Rabbit. <laughs> the Southern Renaissance unit was Br'er Rabbit, Uncle Remus. An animal who can always hold up his end of the stick in equal company, but here too much was being expected. I mean, you, you can't ask Br'er Rabbit to go against Hemingway and Hawthorne. But uh, then, you know, in the 1920s, 30s, 40s, 50s, the best writing in the world was in our backyard. Okay, you, you had Faulkner and Wolfe and, and O'Connor and Catherine Ann Porter and just uh, one writer after another. <clears throat> Regionalism provides the possibility of reading a small history in a universal light. You, you've got to stand somewhere. And so being a Southerner is a good way of looking and seeing, reading history in the light of God's, God's love. And then Walker Percy, an old BUS boy, my, my school, he was, went to BU at Birmingham University School. He was on the Today Show one time. And he was asked why there were so many good Southern writers. And he said, because we lost the war. And in the South, when you say the war... You meant then the Civil War. I mean, the Wawa. Yeah. Mark Twain said it was a line of demarcation. Everything's before the Wawa or after the Wawa. I mean, he said it's like A.D. and B.C. I mean, he said, say, we date by it, okay? <clears throat> what he was saying is that we have had our fall. It's like being a second fall from grace. It's like being kicked out of the Garden of Eden twice. You know, if you were if you were a rich white guy, it's a pretty good place. If you weren't, it was it was a horrible place. <laughs> but the South went into it knowing they'd win the Civil War because they had love of land and honor and everything on their side. And and then we lost it. Then all of a sudden they had to reevaluate everything. Why did we lose it? We have gone into the modern world with an inburnt knowledge of human limitations and with a sense of mystery which could not have developed in our first state of innocence. We were doubly blessed, not only in our fall, but in having the means to interpret it. So because of what happened, you've lost your whole way of life. That's material for some great stories. And if you have some people named, you know, Faulkner and O'Connor and Wolfe, they could put it into words, then you get some great literature. Okay? Well, so you've got, you've got Holga in this terrific story, and she's, she has to have her wooden leg stripped away from her for her to receive grace. And she remember the you know, she's got to find she's got to have that false heart, her bad heart fixed. She has to have her glasses. She has to become blind so that she can see. And so he uses all those symbols to pull it all together there. It's really a wonderful, wonderful story. 
Okay. Well, listen, uh, thanks for coming. I really enjoyed it. I always do. And uh, hope to see next. Got a really good story. Uh, Greenleaf. Now, I'm getting to some of their lesser known. Greenleaf is a really uh, a good story there. And uh, the life you say may be your own. I'm going to try to do two, which is going to be a challenge. But, you know, it's uh, got, got some good stories there. Okay. Well, listen, y'all have a great day, and thank you very much. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.